Second uh, Samuel chapter 6, as we continue together here on Wednesday evenings in our study of First and Second Samuel. Second Samuel chapter 6, and we'll be looking at all uh, 23 verses this evening. The scripture says in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 6, again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bel Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood and on harps and stringed instruments, tambourines and sistrums and cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to touch the ark of God. He took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died by the ark of God. Now David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. Now it was told to King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six steps that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David... Uh, Michael, Mikal, I always struggle with what is the correct pronunciation of her name. Let's just go with Michael. I think that's what we've been going with. Has it been what we're going with? Or have we been saying Mikal? Let's go with Michael, all right? Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. 
Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. I do have to stop right here and say that when I was a kid, my mom would buy these little Debbie raisin cakes with cream in them. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't know why, but every time I read Cake of Raisins, I think about that little Debbie treat. And I'm on a diet right now. I'd love to have that Cake of raisin. Well, anyway, this is what David gives everybody. I don't know if it was little Debbie or not, but he gave him a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a Cake of Raisins. And so all the people departed, everyone to his house. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself in the eyes of the maids of his servants. And as one of the base fellows, shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this. And will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken by them, I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. I've entitled uh, tonight's uh, study, Does God Really Mean What He Says? Does God really mean? I mean everything. Everything that he says, does God really mean everything that he says? This is the question that has certainly changed the course of humanity uh, since creation. This question is what Satan put into the heart of Eve when he tempted her in the garden. And he said, did God really mean what he said when he told you to eat from this, or not eat from this specific tree in in the garden? Does God really mean what he says? Not only... Was it the first question that changed the course of humanity? It continues to be an issue that we are dealt with every single day of our lives in terms of our obedience or disobedience, our actions, our behaviors, what we think, what we say. All of that is connected to whether or not we truly believe if God means what he says. Now, I I want you to understand just here at the very out front that God's Warnings, all of his warnings in the Bible, they are the result of his kindness to us. His kindness to us. His boundaries aren't there to restrict us. His boundaries are there to protect us. So when God told Adam and Eve not to eat of a particular tree, a particular fruit in the garden, it it was a warning out of his kindness. A warning out of his kindness in order to protect them from dying, and to furthermore, woo them to himself. This is what Paul meant when he wrote in Romans chapter 3 and verse 4, that it is the goodness or the the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That out of his kindness, he sets boundaries, he, he, he protects us in order to keep us from death, to keep us from harm, and to draw us ultimately close to him. 
Every day of our lives, we come face to face with that question. Does God really mean what he says? And I'm here to show you tonight from the Bible that nothing could be more foolish or regretful than to carelessly or casually approach what God has said. Because God does really mean what he says. And we see that very clearly here, even in what is a shocking, somewhat confusion in how Uzzah died immediately because he touched the ark of God. Now, this is not an easy chapter to outline, so I'm going to give this to you the way that it helped me in my study. I'm going to give it to you in three scenes, okay? Here's scene number one, and this is what I wrote just in my own study in this first paragraph. Scene number one is a good thing done the wrong way, all right? That's the first scene, a good thing done the wrong way. We come into chapter six, David is now king over all Israel. And uh, what he's about to do is the most important thing that had happened in Israel since the day that he was anointed king over all Israel. King David is going to do what he can to return the glory of God to Israel. That's his desire. That's his motivation. That is his intention. He wants to return the glory of God to Israel. Look at it there in verse 1. And David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000 of them. And he rose and he went with all the people who were with him from Bel, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God. And just in case we're confused, the narrator identifies what this ark is. It's the ark whose name is called by the name. In my Bible, the, the word name here is capitalized. He is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So I've told you David's missions. He, he's, he's desiring to return the glory of God to Israel, and he does that by going after the ark. And so in case we are new to our study of the Bible and understanding what the ark is, maybe sometimes, as I've noted before, when we hear the ark of the covenant, we automatically think of Indiana Jones uh, and uh, the search of the ark. You know, this is not that uh, but, but we do need to understand what the ark is. So let's just begin by answering that question. What is the ark of God? What is the ark of God? Well, the ark was a gold-plated wooden box. That's what it was. It was a gold-plated wooden box, approximately three feet, nine inches long, and two feet, three inches wide and high. On the top of this gold-plated wooden box was a lid, and on the top of that lid, there were two angels, or as the scripture calls them here, cherubim. They, they were facing each other. And it was in between these angels on the top here of this lid is what we call the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was the place where the high priest would sprinkle blood once a year to make atonement for the sin of the people. It is the most sacred piece of furniture in all of Israel. Inside of this box, inside the ark, were a couple of things. There were the tablets of stone on which the Ten Commandments had been written. There's also a golden pot of manna, and then there were Aaron's, and there was Aaron's rod, uh, the rod specifically that 
that budded. The ark of God represented the covenant presence of God. God's promise to be their God and their responsibility as a people to be God's people. It was the most important symbol of God's presence and the relationship between God and Israel. Now, we fast forward to today in this covenant of grace and this New Testament age in which we live and we understand that it is not a ark that represents God's presence to us, but no, Jesus has fulfilled everything that the ark symbolizes. Uh, Jesus is the presence of God in our lives. And we think about what Jesus accomplished to become that for us. Uh, Think about it like this in terms of what the ark served to do. Again, inside of the ark, you you had the Ten Commandments, which was a reminder of man's sinfulness, that we as mankind have broken God's law. And then you have the golden pot of manna, which is another reminder of our sinfulness, that we have complained against God and we have groaned over his uh, blessings. And then you have the uh, uh, Aaron's rod that budded, which was a reminder of what happened as a result of that. The rebellion against God and the rebellion against Moses and his leadership, a reminder that in our sinfulness, we often rebel against God's lordship and authority in our lives. All of that is contained within the ark, reminding us, reminding Israel of how we are sinners. But yet Jesus comes and he sprinkles his own blood on the mercy seat by dying on the cross. And as he died on the cross, he shed his blood. And now what we have on the mercy seat is the blood of Jesus Christ covering our sinfulness. And not only is it covering our sinfulness, it is also bringing us into the presence of God. But before that transaction took place at Calvary, it was the ark that God had established as symbolic of his presence. Where the ark would be, there is blessing. But when the ark was outside of Israel, uh, then God's blessing would often be vacant. So this, this is very, very important. So let's answer the next question. That is why in the world of this ark is so important. Why is it not in Israel? Why is David having to go get it? Well, simply put, uh, it had been captured. And we studied this in our study, howbeit a long, long time ago. In fact, it's been about 20 years in the chronology of our study that uh, Saul had taken the ark into a battle against the Philistines. And as a result, the Philistines captured the ark. Uh, They found out quickly, though, that it was uh, too much for them to handle themselves. That was the story of Dagon and and the gods falling in their temples and people breaking out with all the tumors and and people dying. And it's like, that's it. We're not dealing with this anymore. And so they transported it to the house of Abinadab, where it had remained until this very day, 20 years. Uh, In fact... There's no mention of the ark from 1 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 3 until we see it here in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 1. But my point in that is, for us to understand here, outside of David's actions here in chapter 6, it would seem that the ark of God, the most important piece in God's covenant with Israel, that to the nation it, it had 
been all but forgotten. It was not even in their minds, perhaps. So David takes 30,000 men to the house of Abinadab, which was about 10 miles from Jerusalem. And he goes with good and holy intentions of bringing the glory of God, the Ark of the Covenant, to the city of David, to Jerusalem. And it's important to know this. Because this is David's priority. The priority of his kingdom thus far is the glory and presence of God. He wants the glory and presence of God in Israel. So all of this, all of this, this is holy intention. This is, this is good motive. And here's what happens. Look at verse 3. They get to the house of Benadab and it says they, I guess these are the people that David had set in charge of all of this. Set the ark of God on a new cart. They brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And then David and all the house of Israel, they played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments. Now, this looks good, right? They're bringing the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and there's this big production, this big celebration. There's music, there's singing, there's worship. The glory of God is coming back to Israel. The ark of God, that blessed symbol of our covenant with God, is now coming to the capital city. And if you and I had been there, in that crowd that day, I believe we would have felt something for sure. You know, it's like when you're, when you're in a good word, I, 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 I kind of felt this Sunday, I felt like our service from the opening song through the, through the scripture reading, through the Lord's Supper, through the preaching, through the prayer of benediction, I mean, it just, it felt good to be in the house of God. You, you know what I mean? When you, you walk away, you just, man, I just felt something. And uh, I believe that's exactly how we would have experienced it. All this music, all this celebration, this excitement, the glory is coming back. We'd have certainly felt something. But to understand the problem here in these verses is to understand how God demanded the ark to be handled. This may have felt good, but it was terribly wrong. Now, I don't have time to take you to every one of these passages. If you want to study this for your homework, I know I say that often. You probably don't do your homework, but I'm going to give it out there to you anyway. You know, go, go to passages like Exodus 25 or Numbers chapter 4, chapter 7, Deuteronomy chapter 10. God in these places lists specific instructions on how the ark of God was not only to be established, but to be transported, to be dealt with, to be carried. Who can do it? I mean, God is a God of detail. If you read your Bible, you understand that. God is a God of immense detail. And that detail notwithstanding, of course, in this situation with the ark. So let me give you a few examples of what the problem is here. For one, anytime the ark was transported, it was to be covered. It wasn't to be left open. And there's no indication here of a covering taking place. The the, the second problem here is that the Ark of the Covenant was to be carried by priest. 
from a specific tribe using the poles that were attached to the ark. But here it is mentioned that the ark was placed on a cart. So you, you get the picture, right? You've got men standing on each side of the, of the cart. I hate to use this analogy, but it would be like, like uh, uh, carrying the casket. They have these poles carried on the ark, and, and this is how they're supposed to carry it, by the poles. Not touching the ark, but by the poles. Well, they're not doing that here. They got innovative. Started thinking of some technology that might can make this a little bit better, easier. So they make not only a cart, but a brand new cart, you know. This is not somebody that uh, dropped off an old refrigerator at the front door of the church seeing if we have anything to do with it. No. They go buy a brand new one. Shiny new cart. And it was driven by the sons of Abinadab instead of carried by the priest. You have to go back all the way to chapter 6 of 1 Samuel to learn that this idea of putting the ark on a cart came from the pagan Philistine priest because that's what they did. So think about this. Israel is supposed to take their instructions from the example of God's word, but here they're following the innovations of the Philistines. That's why it's often important that we do not bring a secular mindset into a sacred place. This is the work of God. This is not a business. And so that's somewhat what's happening here. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but consider the sons of Abinadab for a, for a moment. Uzzah, Uzzah, okay? The name Uzzah means strength, all right? Ahio means friendly, all right? You got a strong one? You got a friendly one. So as I'm, I'm thinking about this this week, I'm, I'm, I'm writing here in my notes. We have the technology of a new cart, a big worship production with strength and friendliness leading the celebration. All of which, by the way, are not inherently wrong. I believe their motive was right and their intentions were good and their singing was in genuine joy for the return of the ark. Thank God for technology. We need uh, strong people using their gifts to serve. We want to be friendly and all these sorts of things. On the outside looking in, it all felt right. It felt good. But listen carefully. Any assessment of good worship is not about how we feel, but how obedient we've been to God. You can go into any kind of worship service and do all these things that give you goosebumps. And I like those moments. But it's no good unless it has been done in obedience to God's holiness and in reverence to His Word. They're doing a good thing, but in the wrong way. Look at verse 6. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God, took hold of it because the oxen were stumbling. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and, and, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. Right, so we read this and we're thinking, what in the world has just happened? They're singing, celebrating, bringing the ark back to Jerusalem, when all of a sudden this ark starts rocking back and forth because the oxen who were 
pulling the cart had a little too much Kool-Aid that morning. And they're stumbling and the ark's rocking. And all of a sudden, to keep it from falling, Uzzah quickly puts his hand out and touches the ark. We would think an honorable thing. But what happens? Well, as soon as he touches it, God strikes him dead. The music stopped. The celebration silenced. The procession changed from an excited, happy parade to a stunned and frightened crowd. Why? Why did God strike him down? Dead. Why did this happen? Calvin put it like this. Here's a man attempting to honor God. Burning with a good and holy devotion. Being punished like a criminal. It's hard for us to reconcile that, isn't it? You mean mean to tell me that God would rather this ark fall down into a dirty, muddy ground than for sinners to touch it? Why? Well, that's what's troubling about this for many people because there's really not an explanation. And this is difficult for a lot of people to not have an explanation from God about anything in our life. To accept the fact that God doesn't have to explain himself to us, that he doesn't have to answer to us, is one of the key marks of our faith in him. God owes me no explanation for what he does. He doesn't answer to me. Deuteronomy chapter 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do the words of his law. All we are told here is that God struck him dead because of his his error. Now the error goes back to the instructions God gave him in handling in the ark. And part of those instructions is that no one was to ever touch the ark. Again, God gave these instructions out of his love and kindness. He didn't want them to die. That's why he's doing this. He didn't want them to die, but the ark was the place of his presence. That's why this was so significant. The ark was where the fullness of God's holiness dwelt, and no sinner can touch the holiness of God and live. So yes, it would have been better for the ark to fall in dirty mud than it would be for sinners to approach the perfect holiness of God. That's how terrifying the holiness of God is. That's how sinful we are. Now, I I don't believe that this is God eternally condemning Uzzah. I don't believe that. I believe that this is God providing the lesson of reaping and sowing. Do you really believe what I say? Because I said, no matter who touches the ark, if they touch it, they die. It's showing us the great and terrifying holiness of God. Look at verse 8. David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. Now, now David's angry, but, but it's not at God, okay? He's, he's angry here at himself. I think he hated what has happened and that it happened under his watch, his leadership. He's confused. He's scared. 
He's so scared that verse 9 says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? By the way, that's a good question. Because in that question, he's recognizing how great and terrifying the holiness of God is and how much of a sinner he is. So he sees how serious the holiness and presence of God is. And he says, wait a minute, boys, we, we can't go any further. There's no way I can bring this ark to me. I'm not good enough. I'm not holy enough. I'm not, I'm not righteous enough. And so David, verse 10 says, would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. Instead, he took it aside in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And during that three months... Verse 11 says, the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. We don't know the descriptions of what that blessing was. All we know is that he blessed him. Yeah. Maybe the raisin cakes were a little bigger those three months. The bread a little bit more. Job provision, all of these things. Blessing came. Now, some debate whether this Obed-Edom was an Israelite because he lived in Gittite. It's hard to understand the full scope of this action and why Obed-Edom was chosen. But the ark went there instead of Jerusalem. That's the point. The ark went there instead of Jerusalem, and by mere possession of the ark, Obed-Edom's house was blessed. And that's scene one. Scene one, a good thing done the wrong way. Here's scene two. Scene two is lesson learned. <laughs> and, and, I, and I put a sub-point to this, and that is there is joy in humble obedience. Lesson learned, there is joy in humble obedience. So after some time had passed, news got back to David that Obed-Edom's house was being blessed by the presence of God through the Ark of the Covenant. In other words, after the heartache of Uzzah's death, David has learned that if God's word is obeyed, and listen carefully, if his holiness is respected, then blessing will follow. Obed-Edom for three months has proven that. And as hard as it was for David to cope with the loss of Uzzah under his watch during the first attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem, David has now learned his lesson. And he's determined to return the glory of God to Jerusalem. Here it is, the right way. The right way through humble obedience. Humble obedience. Look at verse 12. I was told King David saying that the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all the blessings uh, and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. If you're you're marking things in your Bible, I want you to mark a couple phrases because I'm going to come back to them in a moment. He, He does this with gladness, verse 13. So it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six steps that he, here's another thing to mark, that he sacrificed. He sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then, here's another thing to mark, then David danced. David danced before the Lord with all of his might. He he was wearing a linen ephod, and David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord. Here's another thing to mark. He brought the ark of the Lord up with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. So, so they do it the right way, because here we have implied there's no cart involved. The, The scripture says that they were bearing the ark. That means they were carrying it the right way. We assume that because of this, that that it was covered the right way. They had the Levites doing it. Everything's in order now. Everything's in order now. And as they're doing this, verse 12 says they're rejoicing again. All right, that big worship celebration comes back into play, except it's, 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 it's met with the Spirit of God this time. So, so they're rejoicing 
They're sacrificing. That's a big deal here because look at how careful and cautious they are being when it comes to God's instructions. Every six steps, a sacrifice of worship is made. Seems like a little, little elaborate, doesn't it? Like one, two, three, four. I'm running out of room. Five, six. All right, stop. We're not going any further. Let's build an altar. We're going to make a sacrifice and worship the Lord. We're going to honor. Okay, they take some time to do that. Who knows how long that took? One, two, three. They take another six steps. They stop. And they make another sacrifice to the Lord. So they're rejoicing. They're sacrificing. Sacrifices of worship is what this is. Sacrifice. They're respecting God's word. They're reverencing his holiness. They're dancing. They're dancing. All right? I'm not sure what dancing it was. I don't think it was, it was uh, choreographed. I don't think that at all. I think this is just a, a, an undignified moment where we don't care what people think of us because the glory of God is coming back and we're doing it the right way and nobody's dying in the process. And so, you, you, know, you know how it is. You, you, you get in that moment where sometimes, man, the, the, the singing's so good that you, you just want to, amen, maybe two hands. Some of you want to, every once in a while, I know it's rare for our church, but maybe we need to get more tuned in. You go, woo! Some of you think I'd be crazy if halfway through my preaching we all just kind of ran up the wilds. Woo! Holy dancing, right? This is the scene, honestly. This is the scene. They're, they're rejoicing, they're sacrificing, they're dancing. And then verse 13 tells us shouting, sound of a trumpet. That means they're singing to the top of their lungs, they're singing. And it only tells us what David did, it tells us what he wore, which is fascinating. We'll come, it'll be much more significant here in a moment. But verse 14 says he's wearing a linen ephod. Now, this is significant because it implies, now, now, now follow me, it implies that David willingly laid down his royal garments. He willingly set them to the side and he put on a linen ephod, which was the common attire of everyday people. He was humbling himself. Taking upon him the form of a servant, God's servant. The servant of God's people. You see, that, that's what happens when you're truly in tune to, to, to genuine worship of God. It, it, it doesn't bring boasting and pride. No, it, it humbles you. It makes you a servant. It's one of the first key indications that one is truly maturing. They're truly getting closer to God. They don't get bigger up the ladder. They get smaller. David says, I, I, don't have, I don't have to wear these royal robes. He takes them off. He puts them to the side. He puts on the linen ephod. Again, I'll give this to your homework because the linen ephod was also the attire of priest. So perhaps David is pointing us to God's King Jesus who is king and priest, who also thought himself of no reputation, who also left the throne of heaven, took upon him the form of the servant, came into the likeness of men. This is what David is doing. Now, verse 16, and if, if you like to watch something on television, all of a sudden, you know, you're focused, on the, you're focused on this right here on the street, and all of a sudden the camera zooms back and just kind of takes you up here to this window in the sky. So like, that's what happens here. The camera, the camera is on the parade, the celebration, the worship, and all of a sudden it backs up and moves over 
to this window. Look at verse 16. We find here that the Bible says, as the ark of the Lord came to the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window. She saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. She's not down there involved in the worship. She's up here criticizing what's going on down there. Spurgeon said that like many who are merely spectators of other people's worship, that Michael was, and I quote, looking down on others from a window of superiority. But the main scene here, and we'll come back to her in a minute, is all the makings of joyful, extravagant worship before the Lord as a result of their humble obedience and reverence to the holiness of God. This time, they're doing a good thing the right way. The right way. Because they learned their lesson. And there's joy and humble obedience. Verses 70 through 19, and we're going to go back and read it again, but the Bible says here that they brought it into the city. They put it in its place where it belonged. And then to show that he is a king of provision... He provides the people bread, meat, cake of raisins, and everybody went to their own house. That's the second scene. Let me give you the third and final scene, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll take care of these bladders here in a minute. All right, scene number three. Scene number three, a prideful disapproval at home. A prideful disapproval at home. Now, we saw the glimpse of Michael in verse 16, but now we see a confrontation. In verse 20, David had been blessing the kingdom. Now he returns home to bless his family. Look at it, verse 20. Then David returned to bless his house, and Michael, the daughter of Saul. Interesting here. The narrator doesn't identify her as the wife of David. This is important because it's trying to give us a little insight into this relationship. She is still more about her daddy's kingdom then she is David's kingdom. There's not the wife of David here, even though she is the wife of David. Her thoughts, her actions, her heart, her feelings, it is all about being the daughter of royalty, the daughter of Saul. Now, notice what happened here. Uh, she came out to meet David. So there's no chemistry between David and Michael at this point. At one time, they were in love, but Saul, her father, as you know, gave her to another man while David was a fugitive. But then years later, David insisted that she return, which pulled her away from her husband. You remember the whole scene? I mean, the people are going to get her after Abner, and he's pulling her away. And you imagine the husband's trying to chase her, and finally they say to the husband, you need to go back home. She's going back to David. It's all a convoluted mess. She may be living in David's house, but they're not clicking on all cylinders, if you know what I mean. And as I've already mentioned, she's an emblem of Saul's rejected kingdom, which is why we see the phrase daughter of Saul as opposed to the wife of David. And as David is coming home, <laughs> I laugh every time I read this. David's coming home from work, and she comes out to meet him. All right? This is not good, fellas. Every husband in this room knows this is not good, right? This is not good. You know, if you pull up in the house... And nobody comes out first probably means, for the most part, been a good day. But if she comes out before you ever get out of the truck, something going wrong. Either I'm in trouble or she's about to kill the kids, either one. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the, so that's exactly what she does. She doesn't wait for him to get in the house. She marches right out that front door. 
And Michael says to him, look at it, verse 20, how glorious. This, this, is, this is sarcasm. Sarcasm. You, you women know what I'm talking about, right? This is sarcasm. Michael's real good at it. How glorious was the king today, uncovering himself in the eyes of the maids of his service as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Oh, how, how nice it was to see the king taking off of his royal garments and behaving the way that he did, like the commoners, acting silly and crazy and undignified. She's upset. Because she comes from the house of royalty. Saul never acted like David did. This is not how a king acts. This is not what royalty looks like, David. But we know that what David did was an act of true humility and worship. But she's embarrassed of him. She wants to correct him. She wants to put him in his place. She she entirely disapproved of his worship and commitment as a servant to God's people. Think about what he's coming home to. He's coming home to a family member who entirely disapproves of his worship and his commitment as a servant to God's people. And some of you know what that's like. To come home to a family member or to have a close friend or someone you work with that entirely disapproves of your worship, entirely mocks your commitment as a servant to God, who thinks you are wasting your ever-loving time being with God's people on a Wednesday night. And sometimes that dynamic is extremely difficult to live with. But as I, as I told someone this morning, uh, I think David's battle with Goliath prepared him for his battle with Michael. Look at it in verse 21. David said to Michael, no, no, you don't understand. What I did was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all of his house to appoint me ruler over the people of Israel, over, over the Lord. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. No, I'm going to keep playing music. I'm going to keep singing because what I did, I did for the Lord. And I will be even more undignified than this. I will be humble in my sight. And the others will hold me in honor. Two things he wanted her to know immediately. Number one, he wanted her to know that this was not about me. It was about the Lord. It was before the Lord. It was before the Lord. Therefore, I will play this music before the Lord. I was thinking this, this week and, uh, of how sometimes, you know, uh, people say, well, Pastor, I didn't like that song. You know what my response is? That's okay. That song wasn't for you. It was for the Lord. Therefore, we're going to keep singing that song. We're going to keep doing it because what we were doing was before the Lord. It wasn't for you. It was for God. That's what he's saying. Criticize me all you want. Be embarrassed by my worship. You don't like it that I raised my hand at worship? I don't care. I wasn't doing it for you. I was doing it for the Lord. You don't like it that I'm there every Sunday and every Wednesday and I serve here and I serve there? That's okay. It's fine. I was never doing it for me. I was never doing it for you. I'm not even really doing it for anybody else. I'm doing it before the Lord. And he wanted her to know that. This was about the Lord. It wasn't about him, his kingdom, his family. It was about Jesus. And then he says, I will continue to decrease, making myself more and more a servant of God. (laughs) I will be even more, he says in verse 
21, undignified than this. You didn't like how undignified I was today. What do you see what I do tomorrow? Now, some of you husbands can be stubborn like that. Your wife says, I don't like that blue shirt you're always wearing. Then you wear it the next day, and then the next day, and the next day. You don't like it today, I'm going to wear it tomorrow. But this was an unholy motivation. This was a holy devotion. I, I wish I had time. I'm already out of time. But I wish I had time to take you to a New Testament story that reminds me of this scene in Matthew chapter 26, the woman with the alabaster box who brought her extravagant worship to Jesus and the disciples turned their nose down indignant at her. That's what Michael is doing to David. You see, David was experiencing joy, the joy of humility, while Michael was experiencing the misery of pride. What about you tonight? The joy of humility or the misery of pride? Most miserable people are filled with themselves. So the story turns sad. Look at verse 23. We close here. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, two opinions have been formed about this. Can't be dogmatic about either one. Some say that this just strictly means that God made her womb barren from that point forward. This was a part of the consequence, the judgment for her criticizing David's worship. Others think that the marriage became so tense that David and Michael never had marital relations again from that point forward. Here's what we do know. That like Hannah, Michael experienced the same struggle that she did being barren. But what she didn't share with Hannah was Hannah's humility. And since she didn't share Hannah's humility, she didn't share in Hannah's outcome. So two things to think about. Question one, do I tremble at the thought of displeasing the Lord? Do I tremble at the thought of displeasing the Lord about approaching his word carelessly? Do, do I live my life every day really believing that God means everything that he says? All right, here's the second thing I want you to think about. Am I willing to worship in such a way that it's actually noticeable to others? David didn't care, did he? Dancing in the streets, baby. Praising, worshiping. Play that song again. Put it on repeat, Asaph. This is good. Let's sing it again. Turn it up. Well, you keep turning it down for Chris. Turn it up. Sing it louder. The glory is coming back. He didn't care. He didn't care. Are you willing to worship in such a way that's not only noticeable to others, but may very well be disapproved of by your own family, by your friends. Well, God really means what he says. 
And what God says means more than what any else can or will ever say to you or me. Oh, may God do in our hearts what he needs to do through his word tonight. Um, God also says uh, that we should be considered of people's time, and it's 8.13. Let's stand together for prayer.